You're listening to a podcast from the Norwich Showcase, a new international platform for British writing and literature development taking place here in Norwich from Friday 9th of March through to the 13th. Brought to you by Writers' Centre Norwich and British Council. You can find out more about the Norwich Showcase at writerscentrenorwich.org.uk. His first screenplay was BAFTA nominated 
his first novel, A, a Manuscript, uh, later reissued as The Railroad House, won him the best crime novel by a debut author at the Crime Writers Association Award. The Savage Garden, which is the novel I know best, published in 2006, wonderful novel, um, was originally Judy Pick. His third novel, The Information Officer, was published in 2009, and he's working on a fourth. That's a third of the way in, is that right? Uh, yeah, I'm, no, I'm on the fifth. Fifth. Yeah, I'm on the fifth. And yeah, he lives in, in Oxfordshire. As for me, another genre crosser, another maverick, um, I read English and art history for my first degree. Um, and since then have worked mostly as an academic until 2003, uh, but crossing history, history of science, history of art, um, particularly history of science, that's been the one thread in my work all the way through. Um, and then frustrated with the conventions and the protocols of academic argument and academic books, I moved into fiction in 2003, published a novel called Post Walk uh, in 2007, and then the Coral Peak 2010 both works uh, that examine history of science, history of ideas in particular. And I've just completed a book uh, of creative nonfiction, which has been about 10 years in the making, um, which is called Darwin's Ghosts, and it's about the history of evolution before Darwin comes out of the first time with Bloomsbury. So you can see we move between genres, we move between periods of history. Um, and they're all mavericks and polymaths in different ways, rather um, uh, disinclined to stay digging the same fields. So that, I think, will be one of the subjects of, of what we talk about today. Just, so that, just before we begin, uh, what we're going to try to do, what I will try to do, is each of us is going to give a reading, a short reading from our work, about three pages long, and we'll, we will introduce those. But what we want to do to make sure there's plenty of audience participation is we'll move between discussion, reading, and Q&A, and we'll keep doing that so that there'll be opportunities for you to ask questions as we go, rather than <coughs> that to the end. Um, so we'll just start with, um, uh, I'm just going to ask Sarah and Mark an open question. I described you just now as genre crosses and wanderers, uh, and, um, and I just wondered whether there were particular periods of history that you find yourself returning to, <coughs> why? Uh, and then there's history in which you still feel you want to explore but haven't reached for yet. Um, and whether you have a sense of whether there's a sort of common goal or common um, object that you're searching for and looking for in your work uh, across the different God, a good Rebecca question. In terms of the genre crossings, one of the things that I think links the two genres that I've worked in, which is thrillers and uh, history, is that I do see history as a profoundly thrilling narrative, mm -hmm. right? Um, and to have cut my teeth at the trade of learning how to construct narratives to be thrilling is a very helpful skill when I go back into the past. Because one of the great dangers of writing historical fiction, of course, if you become passionate about the history, is that you want everybody to know everything that you know as they read your book. And that makes for the worst kind of historical fiction possible because it's undigested history. Whereas the demands of a thriller writer is that you grab the audience from page one and you don't let them go till you've shaken them like in the mouth of the dog 
at the end of the book. And those two things together, I think, mean that when you write history, you cannot just write problems of fact. You have to plait it and weave it in to the narrative. So in, in those two regards, although I never set out to write history, um, I began loving history through reading historical fiction. And then I had the romance of history beaten out of me by three years' academic training. And I thought history was too complex to put into fiction. But those two together, I think, have made me the writer that I am today. And in terms of period, I'm stuck. I'm stuck. You know, 10 and a half, 11 years ago, I stood in a square in Florence, and I looked around and I thought, what the hell happened here 500 years ago? Because, my God, it didn't happen anywhere else like here. And what would it be like to be living through that moment as if it was the shock of the new, and modern, and hot? And if you could write a novel about that, which of course I can't, but if you could do that. And of course, as soon as I took the lid or the stone up, there was so much pouring into me that I can't leave it. So the three novels, and now the fourth that I've written, are all between the years 1490 and 1570. And I probably could live three lifetimes, and there will be another 20 novels within that hundred years. So it was, a, it was a place that spoke to you, was it Florence? Yeah. It is an extraordinary city yeah. because it's all there still. You can imagine yourself walking around. You can go to the little doorway in the cloister where Michelangelo you know, snuck in to, to dissect the bodies yeah. at night, and it's just there. It's like a, it's like a living uh, stage set, it yeah. seems to me. So, yeah. I, well, I, I, uh, I have a great affection and passion for Italy as well. I mean, um, I've lived there for several years, landed in Florence uh, just after school. But I think, the, the, and when it, came, when it came to studying history, I was very, very drawn to the Middle Ages. But the, that I, I, and I'm not quite sure why, I've ended up, um, my books tend to be set in the recent past, so the 20th century. And um, as I say, I didn't really intend to do that. And that, that again, actually was a product of place. Um, it was a community, uh, there was a community at the top end of Long Island, an, uh, an old fishing community, which I've known over the years through friends who uh, rent a house up there. And it was something that was said one day by a friend of theirs, a very simple thing, changed the course of my life, this, this conversation. She said, um, she said, oh, it's very interesting, the, the old fishing clans up here in the Amagansett uh, speak English with Dorset and West Country accents from the 17th century. Um, and it was that idea that the history, the ancient histories of these people who are enshrined in their voices, even today, that I found uh, really fascinating. And, and I don't know, but we tend to think of America as a very young country. But these communities are very ancient communities, and they take their history very seriously. I, mean, I grew up in a rural community in Sussex. But I doubt there are, well, I know for a fact that there wouldn't be 12 families who could you know, trace their, their heritage back eight generations in the way that some of these communities in America and, and it was really, it was that idea, the idea of this ancient world and the collision of that ancient world with the moneyed weekend world of the <coughs> New Yorkers who they bought up this corner of America. And, and it was that clash that appealed to me. Um, and the first book sprang from that. There is a dead body in it, but it's more an excuse 
to explore uh, the conflict between these two very different communities. And, and I thought that it should, well, I was under quite a lot of pressure to make it a contemporary story, but it just, it just didn't work for the narrative. It had to be set, it seemed to me, in 1947, which was when this conflict was coming to a head, when these two worlds first came into collision with each other. Because by the late 20th century, the battle was over, the money had won. They own that place now. These, these poor fishermen, they're not even allowed to fish. They've been legislated out of existence. So I found myself picking the 40s because of that. A period I had very little interest in you know, when I was at Cambridge, 19th century, British and constitutional, and a lot of medieval. But um, subsequent books have seemed to have sprung off, you know, have spun off from that. Uh, I knew very little about the Second World War. I found myself doing a lot of research on the Second World War. Uh, the, the second book actually was set in Italy in the 1950s. Um, the third book was uh, an out-and-out war book set on the island of Malta during the Second World War. Um, and then the last one was set in the 30s in France. And I have to say, I feel I have a lot more to explore uh, in the 30s. Like, the definition of historical fiction is what, 60 years? So, the unpronounceable title. Yes, we might not be wrong. I'm sorry. 
So, um, what I explained a little bit about the book, um, set up in Long Island in 1947. The, the hero of the novel, for want of a better uh, word, is a fellow called Conrad, who's a Basque fisherman by descent, first generation. Um, and in this passage, he's casting his mind back um, to his childhood. Um, and there was a time on Long Island up there where a lucrative uh, form of fishing was shore-raising, when they went out through the very treacherous uh, when the right whales migrated up, up the eastern sea. They put out on these boats through the surf and uh, they harpooned them and then they dragged them back to the beach, a very basic form of way in which um, they uh, adopted from the Montalquet Indians um, back in the 17th century. So this is a, this is a passage where Conrad is recalling his childhood with a couple of his friends. Conrad and Billy were 11 years old when Rollo first shared with them the secrets of the whaleboat house. It was a Friday after school, a sunny, wind-blown afternoon with choppy waves thumping against a stunt beach, and they had to clear the sand backed up against the doors before they could enter. The whaleboat held centre stage, like a dusty sarcophagus in some ancient tomb. Around it lay an armoury of weapons to ensnare a boy's imagination. Harpoons, lances, axes, grapnels and blades of every description for cutting into blubber. But Rollo directed their attention to the boat itself. He made them trace the sheer lines of its white pine hull with their fingertips. He pointed out the sharp stern end, explaining that the ability to retreat rapidly without turning was vital during the whale's flurry, when a crashing blow from the vast flutes could tear the boat and its occupants apart. He showed them the wooden pole pins trimmed with leather to deaden the sound of the oars of approaching doom. And he demonstrated how, in time-honored tradition, the boat steerer switched places with the boat header in order to deliver the death stroke. Most impressive, though, was the change in Royal. What had happened to the nervous downturned gaze, the halting speech, the struggle to put names to all but the most commonplace objects? He spoke with a confidence he had never once displayed in the classroom, plucking technical terms from the air at will. Conrad and Billy must have passed the test, for they were invited to return time and time again. Together they reenacted the, the stories handed down by Captain Josh to his grandson, Rolo standing tall and proud in the stern, barking orders to his depleted crew too. Slack back, hold water, spring ahead, stern all, before hurling the harpoon into a big burlap sack of hay conscripted to play the whale. With time, willing crew members were found to man the other oars. Then the numbers climbed beyond the capacity of the boat, and tales of inshore rallies made way for grander, more epic yards of deep sea round the horn whaling that could accommodate a larger cast of characters. There was never any shortage of adventures to be played out. As a young man, Captain Josh had sailed from Sag Harbor on the ocean-going ocean whale ships, the last of three generations of Kemp's to do so. He had made three trips in all, visiting both frosty ends of the globe, rising through the ranks from pimpled greenhorn to chief harpooner. When gaslighting finally put paid to the demand for whale blubber, he returned to the wife and young family he hardly knew, a respected man and a rich one. Like others in Amagansi's attempt, <coughs> fortunate enough to have survived their time aboard the whale ships, he'd had to content himself with sporadic rallies off the ocean beach in late winter. 
after the speedy finbacks and hostile sperm whales of the southern oceans, the local right whales, long on blubber and bone, short on speed, made for easy quarry. Then suddenly, some years before the Great War, the whales disappeared. Inshore whalemen up and down the coast hung up their harpoons, all the gear was stowed away, forgotten. The Kemp's boat hadn't seen the light of day for almost 20 years when Rollo, Conrad, Billy, and a pack of other local kids first heaved it out of the whaleboat house under the approving gaze of Captain Josh. The building itself was to double as a whale ship, its boxy construction not unlike the square stern, blunt bound vessels that used to clog the quayside in Sag Harbor, built by the mile and cut off in length as you wanted, Captain Josh had said, before dispatching two men into the masthead to keep watch the whales. A blow-hole, they hollered from the roof. Where away? Sperm whale, two points off the weather bow, sir, four miles away. Stand by to lower. And so it continued, Captain Josh marshalling his troop of young actors, feeding them their lines, directing the chase of a particularly feisty sperm whale encountered in the South Pacific, which, once ironed, had proceeded to strip all 300 fathoms of Manila line out of the boat before dragging it on a hard-stopping Nantucket sleigh ride, Captain Josh rocking the boat fiercely to mimic the effect of it crashing over the waves. The whale had fought till the last, capsizing the boat on two occasions before finally expiring. That wasn't the end of it, though. They had lost sight of the whale ship on the long pool back. Then the wind breezed up from the southwest. There were six men in a cockle-shell boat tossed on an angry sea, many hundreds of miles from land, rowing blind in a fading light, dragging a dead whale. When the last vestiges of day dipped below the western horizon, hope went with them. Some among them began to pray, not for succor, but final prayers, beseeching forgiveness for sins committed. And then they saw it, the beacon in the night, the distant fires of the triworks burning on the deck of their mother's ship and the strength returned to their backs and arms. Safe alongside at last, one of the oarsmen, a Scotsman, cursed, then kicked the whale that had, cost them, that, that had almost cost them their lives. Too exhausted for further labour, others were assigned to undertake a cutting in while they recovered on the deck, smoking their pipes. When the first blanket piece was hoisted aboard from the carcass, the block made fast to the main masthead came free and two tons of suspended blubber felt the fierce grip of gravity. The scene was enacted in sombre silence, the whaleboat's lug sail doubling as the blanket piece, Billy playing the unfortunate Scotsman on whom it landed. The message was clear, though Captain Josh spelt it out for the younger ears. Even in death, the whale had sought satisfaction for the disrespect shown it by one of its hunters. It was a lesson they would all be wise to remember.
Yes, I think, I think that's right. I mean, I'm sure you find the same thing. You want to test the reach of certain devices as a way of conveying the, the knowledge that you've acquired. I mean, I, when, when Sarah was talking before, I think I mean, if one, if you look at it realistically, one's probably using 5% of that for, for all the knowledge you acquire, for all the research you do. It is an exercise in throwing things away. And then I find things leap out at you, you know, things. I wanted to, I wanted to mention Wayne, the Wayne heritage of this area. You don't want to give the history lesson. And I think uh, the conceit that I employed was to play the thing out through a bunch of school kids as a game and use that. Plus also to have uh, this sort of rather touching idea that they are, they are, they are led through this story, through an old man and that's often the way. That's often the way of this kind. You you know, you learn the knee of your forebears, and um, and so that's what that's what I did. And then and then the rest of it is just an imagining. You know, you just I see, I see myself there. I imagine myself as a kid playing away, and um, and you do as little, and you try and use as little as of the information as possible. I think that's the key. Because I think if you've done, and this is a lot of people say this, I think it's true. I think if you've done the legwork. Even if you don't put it on display, it's there. It's there. People I sense it. I think that, that it's lurking there. I think it's also that unless and until you've done the legwork, you don't have the temerity and courage to start writing. You know, I, I, I think one is overwhelmed by how much one doesn't know, mm. and therefore you learn as much as you humanly can to get over your fear that you're going to misrepresent it. Mm. And that's, I think that's a very interesting moment in writing fiction set in history when you, in a sense, leave the research and you jump. Yes. And you jump. And for a while, you hear the wind in your ears because you're saying, but you will be okay. And you're never going to write it until you jump. You can stand on the edge of a cliff and call people and your friends about 16th century memories for as long as you like, but you're not going to do it until Because you obey what you don't know. 
But of course, what you've ended up with is a, is a completely arbitrary set of things that still exist. And I think that the very big answer that underlines this is that the history that we now study is profoundly different to the history, certainly, that I learned. I left Cambridge in 1972. Mark is younger than me, right? But when I left in 1972, history was still essentially great kings, great queens, great battles, the rise of constitutional democracies, empires arising from the whole. In those 35, 40 years, what's happened is a revolution has taken place in history. And that revolution was Marxism, feminism, gay stuff, gender, a whole series of things which has interrogated history to ask a series of questions that historians were asking before. What was it like, excuse me, to be half the population during the most exciting creative moment in the late Middle Ages, early modern period, the Renaissance? Because all the bloody names are men. And if we think that history is about everybody, what was happening to women, right? And then you continue that to, for instance, ask, so what was it like given that Catholicism claims that buggery and sodomy are a, are a terrible thing against God? Were there no homosexuals? Actually, because the reason that they continue having sermons about them is because there's too many homosexuals. Right. So then you've got another door which you go into. And these are the things that historians don't normally go into. So I suppose that's
you just have to you have to serve you have to you know you have to serve your own story and um, nothing should hold you back from that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, one more question. Um, the, the, um, although you didn't um, like count their names in your list of uh, the uh, the schools who revolutionized the, uh, the, the the historical writing, um, you, all the answers made me think of uh, the school of uh, annals, like people like Mike Block or the Tyrone Rodell, these people. So they were really uh, reaching out towards uh, a, a, a sociological history more than a political uh, grand narrative history. Mm -hmm. um, but I would like to ask you, where do you stand uh, as, as writers of fiction vis-a-vis -vis, um, the so-called official history or the, um, the ideology in it? So I guess the question is about revisionism, really, how, how our work, is that what you mean, that, uh, how does our work I think official history is changing. And actually, one of the we're, we're in an extraordinary period of revisions when it comes to historical fiction at the moment. And I think that we, what we are now doing as a generation of historical fiction writers is we're we're able to take material that literally didn't exist before. You know, that journey I've told you about, the history has taken about, has happened because scholars, be they originally Marxist or part of the feminist movement or part of the gay movement or part of a, a movement to rehabilitate slave culture or whatever, have gone into historical records and asked different questions and found new history. And they have come up with what is just gold dust, the fiction because they have come up with details and people and colourful things that we can use. So when I put my hands up, for instance, to ask if half of all noble women by the end of the 16th century in Italy were in convents, what was the experience of being those women? My imagination is set alive by the fact that I have a mosaic set of colours in front of me from the historical research now done. So I'm no longer in opposition to quite a lot of official history because I think I'm in debt to it. I could not have written Sacred Hearts even 15 years ago because of the level of historical detail and richness that's been given to me. By people who spent two years in the Vatican archives doing just hard work, tapping on stone to see which bits of dust come off, right? And then I grab it up and create a good story and so the responsibility between historians and fiction writers, I think it's in a different, it's in a different league now. We all three belong to a salon in London where historians and writers meet to talk about exactly this cross-fertilization that's going on. And for the first time in my life, I feel that we equally respect each other, partly because we are sitting in their bottoms. We do know. Thank you so much for that work. So it's different now, isn't it? And well, well, Rebecca, you know, she embodies both sides. Exactly. You know, this is what's yeah. going on now. But it's interesting, I think it's very interesting you mentioned the Annal school. I remember reading Montaigne. Yeah. You remember Montaigne? And um, because, I mean, I certainly, there are with a couple of the books. I do sometimes feel like a social historian. And with this, I remember I flew, I knew a man who had fished, gone out through the surf to fish, knew of a man. Um, in 1947, in, in the 
some of where my story takes place. Um, and he lived in Maine now. And a lot of the fishermen there, the old boys, uh, a lot of them have died, but a lot of them are very monosyllabic. Really, you can't really get very much from them. This fellow had gone on to become a newspaper editor <laughs> in Maine. So he was a very eloquent, he was a very eloquent and, uh, and very gregarious individual. So I, I flew to Maine and I just sat. It was very really dark there, but I just sat and I interviewed him for a weekend. And I taped it all um, and I got him to draw little pictures of how what, what it was like. And, and, and you know, in, in a way, I'm, I'm, the, the thing I'm most proud of in this book is probably the fact that I've enshrined that knowledge. He died two weeks after I was there. Um, you talked him out. Yeah, I talked him out. Yes, it was just, you know, th that stuff, that knowledge that could have been lost is at least in the shrine and in China. It's very nuts and bolts work. God help the writers to come after us in 60 years. There is so much information. Too much. Yeah. Yeah. How will they write their historical mm -hmm. fiction? Mm -hmm. I think also uh, for me, uh, in answer to your question, um, it's about where you begin. Different place. Uh, so, for instance, my first novel, Ghost Walk, began as a footnote in official history. It was a footnote about how Isaac Newton, uh, the book, was a, a history of Isaac Newton's life, a biography, but also a sort of study of 17th century science. And um, in this particular case, um, the main body of the book was telling me that um, Newton had been lucky. In 1867, he had gone forward for a fellowship. He was not the obvious candidate. He was not, he hadn't excelled himself at that point. He was competing against lots of other people. Um, and we know he got the fellowship because he got the fellowship in Trinity College, he was able to go on and do all the amazing work that he did. So it's a really important point. The footnote told me that in that particular year, he was lucky because there were more vacancies than usual, because four academics had fallen down staircases to their deaths, apparently drunk. <laughs> so that was <laughs> one of the yeah. Catholic Church before the arrival of Luther 
of corruption, which of course also in its own way finances and uh, pushes forward the Renaissance. If there's one thing I've learned after 10 years of struggle with this period is that beauty and brutality go very hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Exactly the kind of energy that fuels the creative storm of the Renaissance also fuels an equal kind of political, brutal corruption. So he has four children. Um, he, uh, when the novel opens, he has a 16-year-old mistress who he has married off mm -hmm. to his nephew. So there can be a kind of a veil of respectability. Um, and his second son, Juan, who's a complete shit, um, <laughs> has just been uh, murdered, but we don't yet know for sure about this. And this is the scene where they find out about the murder and it's the, um, the impact on the Pope. The Pope is a much larger than life character and he adores his family. A few hours later, the city yawns and rumbles into life. The hours before the heat begins to bite are always the busiest of the day. In the Vatican, the Pope and the Master of Seminaries, Johannes Burkhardt, are up early in consultation over arrangements for the upcoming coronation in Naples. It is afternoon when a Spaniard from Juan's household, the Borges of Spanish, you should know this, comes with the news that his master has not arrived home. The Pope registers a twinge of anxiety. But Juan is a man used to waking up late in somebody else's bed, and with Rome all ears and eyes for further border scandal, it has been drummed into him that he must cover his romantic tracks with darkness. If only I still had the stamina, Alexander thinks to himself, and tries to put it out of his mind. <laughs> but as afternoon turns towards dusk, comes the report that the Duke's horse is found wandering the streets with one of its stirrups cut, and then his groom is discovered unconscious near Piazza degli Ebri blood bubbling from his mouth and a deep knife thrust up and into the lungs. Whatever his story, it will go with him to the grave. He is dead long before they get him home. Alexander, now frantic, sends out patrols of Spanish guardsmen. The sight of their swords on the streets brings out other family guards and gangs alert for any new threat, and suddenly there is a terrible urgency abroad. Juan, the Duke of Gandhi, is missing. Missing. The word contains all manner of horrors. Traders close early, and family palazzos bolt to their great wooden doors. The night brings skirmishes and brawls, but crucially, no further news. The Pope barely sleeps. Next morning, the troops accost anyone and everyone in the area who might have seen something. From along the Tiber, a Slav boatman called Giorgio Stivano comes forward. He owns a woodpile by the hospital of San Gerolamo, where the Dalmatian community gathers he sleeps every night in his boat among the reeds to keep guard against thieves. The story he tells is so vividly drawn that when Alexander hears it read out word for word by the head of the guards, he lets out little moans as if it is happening right there in front of his eyes. I was lying awake in my boat in the hours after midnight when two men came out of the alley by the hospital to the open ground by the river. In the half moon I could see their figures but not their faces. They looked up and down to check there was no one about and then they disappeared. Then two more followed and did the same thing. One of them made a signal back towards the alley and a rider on a white horse appeared. There was a body slumped over the cropper behind him, his head and arms dangling on one side, his legs on the other, with the two first men walking next to it, holding it so that it didn't fall off. They got as far as the river's edge, the place where people throw their rubbish, and then the horseman turned so the horse's backside was to the river. The men pulled the body off by its feet and hands and swung it with all their might. Then the horseman said, has it sunk yet? And they answered, yes, sir. But the man's cloak was still floating on the surface. 
And when he saw it, he said, what's that? His cloak, sir, they said. And they all threw stones and bits of rubbish at it until the water pulled it down. They stood watching to make sure it didn't rise again and then turned and went off. I waited for a while, but I didn't see anything after that. And so the fishing starts. Within hours, the tiger around San Gerolamo is clogged by boatmen from all over Rome, trawling and poking the muddy waters spurred on by the promise of a reward. It fast becomes the joke of the day. The Borgia Pope, whatever his reputation for corruption, has turned out to be a real fisher of men. His enemies laugh hardest of all. The river only proves too eager to disgorge its grotesque treasures. The first course comes up fast, a young man half-dressed with a fat knife wound in the chest, the flesh of the face swollen and nibbled by fish, but still recognisable, except that no one knows who he is. Not long after that, a shout goes up as the trolley net snares a sodden mass of velvet and flesh. And now, sure enough, it is the Duke of Gandia who rises in the foul water, decorated with bits of debris and fully clothed, down to his shoes, gloves and purse, still heavy with buckets hanging from his belt. He might be ready for a night on the town, save for the fact that his legs and torso are riddled with stab wounds, and his neck is a gaping grin of slashed flesh. Behind him, his arms are tied fast. Whoever did this clearly enjoyed themselves. Even though he knows his son is dead, when they bring him the news, Alexander lets out a rolling howl like an animal snapped in the jaws of a trap. The mutilated corpse is brought by boat to Castel Sant'Angelo, where it is washed and cleansed and dressed in full finery with the neck Nice to go to the sun and lies and everything is well in the 
Abandoned by his precious virgin, he becomes consumed by an image of time as a great rolling <coughs> He spreads out his hands blindly in front of him, seeing himself grabbing hold of the spokes of the wheel, wrestling and wrenching it to the slow, grinding standstill, then using all of his bulk and force to move it inch by inch back, betraying the body of the sun the back through death into life, back to the breath of the bridge where one left his brothers, back to the laughter of the summer banquet, back as far as their last encounter that afternoon, the smiling, vibrant young man in slashed silk standing in front of him, dismissing all concern for his well-being as he kisses him goodbye, ready to head off into his fate. Don't go to your mother's tonight. Stay here with me instead. Alexander howls the words into the darkness. I need you. Stay with me. But the wheel is already groaning under the strain of its enforced stillness, and he can hold it no longer, so that it bursts out of his hands, time rushing to catch up, events unfolding each irrevocable step on the road back and forwards to death. Now, in retribution for his arrogance in trying to play the fate, he sees the worst in most detail. One's horse with two riders weaving off from the riverbank into a complex of alleyways, a rush of men emerging through the shadows, dragging him from the saddle onto the ground, the push and pull through a dark entrance into a back room or a cellar. He sees the rope lashed around his wrists and then watches as, supported from behind, one's body is forced upwards to meet the man whose pleasure it is now to deal out death through an orgy of knife thrusts. Nine wounds, they say, each one delivered for a different insult, a litany of grudges. And as the blade thrusts in, Alexander groans as if it was his own flesh being punctured, until at last the man gestures for the head to be yanked back and held so that he can start work on the throat. His final scream collapses into another wave of sobs. Juan is dead. God is offended. Juan is dead, and nothing can bring him back. Outside the barred door, a small coterie of, coterie of supporting cardinals waits and relays, alert for a break in the terrible music suffering. They are joined by Burkhard, the master of ceremonies, who stands tall and still as a stalk, his grim face at even grimmer. Eventually there comes a moment of silence, and someone knocks tentatively, calling through the wood, begging for his holiness to take some nourishment, at least some water, for the summer air is thick and hot and he will do himself damage. But they are answered by a low wail of resistance. Leave me, leave me be. It does not even sound like the Pope's voice anymore. No one would wish such a pain on any man. Even Birchard's grand face crumbles with compassion. <laughs> Which is so amazing. Mm -hmm. And 
And then we know, we know that Alexander's grief was after him. And we know it was Burkhardt, this rather still, kind of grim, Austrian master of ceremony, writes a diary. And he says in the diary that he cried for two days. Um, we like diaries, don't we? Diaries yeah. are good. <laughs> yeah. They are the most, well, one of the most useful resources uh, I find. You just get a, you do, they give you an insight. It's the stuff that they know that they're not really allowed to say. Mm-hmm. And yeah. a great one from Sir Robert Bruce Lockhart. My last book set in uh, France in the 1930s. Sir Robert Bruce Lockhart, who was a bad boy. But anyway, he put it all down. And you see how they function. And it's, it's the use of the swear words. It's reading between the lines, isn't it? Too? Yeah. There's a diary for me. Um, I found a diary uh, that recorded these four mysterious deaths for academics who've fallen down staircases um, by a city councillor who kept a diary of unusual events in Cambridge in that period. And so I read through it. And he recorded a lot of unusual deaths, but on, with all of my four, he recorded it. Um, using unusual language, so he'd say things like, the college authorities said that, or it was supposed that, mm-hmm. in such a way that you could see his own scepticism mm-hmm. about the official version and what actually happened. So, you know, they were, he was suspicious about, yeah. about these deaths and, and clearly thought that they were murders. Uh, but it was reading between the lines. And that, um, yeah, that's what diaries can give you, is, is uh, things that aren't actually that. Great, we're going to take another couple of questions now, yes. Um, I'm very interested in the whaleboat thing that you did there, which was just to write about whaling, which is not exactly a kind of acceptable pastime these days, without prejudice. And it kind of struck me that there's something that um, historical fiction kind of grapples with, with, with varying degrees of success. It's a bit like sitting in this room. I mean, we're you know, looking out on a cold cathedral, age speech in history, and all the rest of it, through a plate glass windows in the comfort of central heating. And that seems to be very much like what historical fiction is like. And you know, in actual fact, the setup works even better, of course, because you're standing between us and it, and you are screening that kind of reality as, as you know, as we are the But there is a kind of an issue with that, which um, goes to something I said earlier, that, um, you know, that uh, now we can look at the history and we have all these kind of narratives through gender studies and all the rest of it. And there comes a point of it, um, if you're, if that intervenes with the way that you can actually write about the past without prejudice, because if um, you know, I mean, it's, it's great that all this stuff exists, and I can see this sort of wonderful little sort of ideological doors open and all the rest of it. But in, in actual fact, in order to kind of recreate the minds of people from even you know a generation ago, I remember my grandfather was dying in hospital, talking to him about the general strike and um, you know his attitudes, things that are going on in the world now. It's a different world. I could not get into his mind to see the things the way he did. And I thought, my God, if we can't actually understand our own grandparents, then how on earth can we topic you know, what it would have been like to live in a particular time that's you know, beyond our own, you know, as you said, memory? Yeah, very good point. Uh, how do we, just to sum the question up, um, how do we write about the past? How do we reach it without, without prejudice? Well, it's also, I mean, you're particularly around this political correctness here, too. Yeah. Uh, it's very interesting. I've just written a scene where um, Alexander is negotiating uh, a, a, a dowry for his daughter, and he's being screwed by the Duke of Ferrara, and everybody knows he's being screwed by it. And he reads it and he lets out something that goes kind of bloodsucker, 
what does he want? Well, I'm pretty certain that he would have used the word Jew somewhere in the world. And I didn't write it, and I went back and looked at it, and I thought, it's, for them it would be absolutely one would go with the other, right? He would. And I put it in, and I took it out, and I put it in, and I took it out, and in the end I left it out. And when you mentioned anti-Semitism, I thought, it's very interesting. There aren't many things that reappear in our history, like a kind of whale back in water, which you have to decide. You can handle attitudes to women. We all know that things have really changed. So you can go back and investigate the female consciousness and, and, and make it painful and make it difficult and talk about it in the moment when a lot has changed. Which are so shocking to us 
Boris can't bear to go there. It's too hot for his human bones. You have to understand that everybody understood Peck, right? If you want to understand the powerful connection between people and Jesus Christ, you have to understand that Jesus Christ died in agony on the cross. And they have a relationship to pain, which is different. You know. And there's a, a fantastic fact in this which is when the first analgesic operation was done on TV news ether in Boston in the 1840s, it was like a revolutionary moment in a kind of march of silence. The only people to about it in the church. And the church wrote pamphlets on how if we can take away pain, then for instance, when people come to their deathbeds and they're not in agony, how will that make them want to confess and understand the sins of hell? And hell starts to recede ideologically <laughs> as soon as pain kills <laughs> So it is just the physical, the physicality, you know, the smells, the sound, what it feels like, which is part of I think I think one inevitably brings one's own prejudices to bear. You can't help it. But I think you also do your best to place yourself in the shoes of people at that time. And that that's not necessarily an answer because we, we know that there are you know multiplicity of reactions to one particular incident today. You know, if something can happen now, we'd all respond differently. So what's the truth of that incident? There is no truth to that incident. You pick you lose yourself in your character. That's the thing. You 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 inhabit this person. Um, and this is the point I was going to make earlier. I find historical. I'm, I'm, I'm writing a contemporary book. It's a very different thing. Um, but I find research a very useful crutch when it comes to writing, because you immerse yourself in this world for a year. It normally takes me a year of research. And and in that time, as you say, there are all these wonderful academics who've done arcane studies into whatever, which and you check and you can cherry pick this wonderful stuff. You don't you don't have to invent it and come up with your imagination. So the, the, the story is coming together. The, the thing I find most useful is you, you have a year to think about your characters. They, they, that I find is the is the greatest benefit. And so I really feel by the time I start writing, I know them in a way I certainly never knew my characters when I was writing film scripts or anything. That's to happen like that. Um, and there's that one moment where you just know how your, you know, your key cast of characters are going to respond to things, mm -hmm. and then, and then at that point, I, I don't, I don't sort of question too much. I just let it be. Yeah, let them be. Let them yeah. be. Yeah. Them yes, exactly. Yeah. All of us talk about that moment where they take on a life of their own, and they're not leading you by the hand. And then it absolutely does happen. And uh, I think at that point, one can't necessarily be held responsible for some of the things that they do. I don't buy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. My character, I'm, I'm always putting them. It's, uh, it's so difficult, isn't it? Um, we do have to be responsible for what they do and say. We do have to make sure that what they're saying and seeing is coming out of what we perceive to be the bedrock of the period. Mm -hmm. you know, people, I mean, for me, it's about God. I, I, I'm working in a period before anybody questions God. So absolutely everybody is sunk into a belief in God, although that belief may have a million different versions of itself. Um, and I do have to think about that. I do have to wonder if there's a, a more modern thought than I would choose to give them. I don't know. I don't always, I'm not even always to answer it. And it's certainly taking me in places I didn't expect to go, but I'm always monitoring them. I'm always 
can't get to truth. Mm. But yeah, minor, minor wayward. Very, yeah, really troubling. So <laughs> as soon as I've got them, then they're off doing their own thing, taking, taking it in different directions. Anyway, let's read a section. Okay. Uh, reading from Ghost Walk, um, which is the novel I described earlier about Newton, Isaac Newton. Um, and the passage I'm going to read from, um, I chose because it's about place. We started by talking about place and the importance of uh, place as a kind of embodiment of history. And I, this novel is set in Cambridge, I live in Cambridge, and there is a sense like Florence that you know, it's, it's a thousand years old, it's small, um, and everything contains this extraordinary layered palimpsest of history uh, that is kind of surfacing through uh, the upper layers all the time. So there's a, there's a little bit of scrubland outside Cambridge that is what's left of an enormous, um, several mile wide field that uh, had or hosted an extraordinary fair. One of the biggest medieval fairs in Europe is described by people like Defoe, it's called Scourbridge Fair. People would come from all over Europe to sell their wares and uh, to buy things. So it would happen after the harvests, um, they would set up stalls, so you have to you know, imagine this, this bit of land up near the river where uh, really just heaving with um, people from all over Europe um, selling glass, selling fleece, selling coal, selling oysters. There was a whole section uh, which, is called, uh, which was called the Oyster Fair, where there were piles and piles and piles of oysters for sale. Um, and of course, those oyster shells are now deep under the ground. You know, they you know, come up in people's bungalow gardens that have been built on that, on that area. So my novel is uh, set in um, contemporary Cambridge and 17th century the woman who is speaking, Lydia, um, is a writer who's come back to Cambridge after the death of a very good friend of hers, a historian of Newton. The historian of Newton has died a mysterious death investigating uh, a series of um, falls down staircases. And she, Lydia, decides to finish the book that the historian had, has not finished. Um, and of course, therefore, enters this world, this strange world that Elizabeth had uh, begun to uncover. So in this scene, uh, Lydia remembers Elizabeth, the historian, taking her to Starbridge Fair and trying to conjure the place for her, uh, trying to make it, make her see what it would have been like in the 17th century. If you want to write about the 17th century, you'll have to know how it smells, Elizabeth had said. I could hear her voice as if she was standing there beside me. Find me an afternoon, you'll conjure some smells, then you'll know where to start, I promise. One snowy afternoon in February, Elizabeth had driven me up and down the Warren streets off the Newmarket Road called Oyster Row, Mercer's Row, Garlic Row, and Swan's Walk. I took scores of pictures through the open window with a digital camera that I used as a kind of visual notebook. Graffiti, overturned bins, scrap metal yards, bungalows, warehouses, and corrugated iron. Modern streets built on the site of the old Stourbridge Common, where the mayor and aldermen of Cambridge had hosted a fair since the 12th century. At the foot of Garlic Row, Elizabeth had parked, climbed out of the car, and then, standing in the forecourt of the scrap metal yard, she turned into some kind of historical shaman, her voice raised against the clamour of the industrial machinery behind us. I gave myself up to her. You had to do that. 
Use your imagination and get your bearings. It's September, in let's say 1664. You're standing at the bottom of Garlic Row, which is the main thoroughfare of the fair. A wide dirt, a, a wide dirt track that runs north in front of you. It's muddy, sticky underfoot. Over that way, the northwest, is the River Grant, down which most of the trains have arrived, many from the north, from King's Lynn, wheeling their way across the waterways of the fans. The boats are moored on the river now. Between us and the river are arable fields. The harvest has just finished, so the fields are cropped close. There's stubble as far as you can see in a few wild flowers. But there's not, not much room for anything to grow now, because already everything has been trampled by hundreds of traders and merchants who have set up their coloured booths in row after row. Over near the river is the coal fair and the tallow fair and a little mound called Fish's Hill. Right in the centre near the Mayor's Temple House is the Oyster Fair, stalls selling thousands of oysters brought down from King's Lynn and kept fresh in barrels of ice and straw. Between the Oyster Fair and us is Sofa's Row. Over to your right are the foot stalls and behind them the White Leather Fair and further north the Horse Fair. Now have the others in their stalls. Think of the trades, the guilds who have come here, goldsmiths, toy makers, braziers, turners, milliners, haberdashers, hatters, wig makers, drapers, pewterers, china warehouses, puppeteers and prostitutes, and among them all, coffee shops, eating houses, brandy shops. There are jugglers, acrobats, and clowns. You're standing amongst all the tents and booths. What can you smell? Close your eyes. Brandy, manure, the seawater smells of oyster shells, the perfumes of soaps, far tiny, leather, oil from wool fleeces piled around the leather chapel. Smells and perfumes seeped into each other as the sun rose. I walked through the thoroughfares, invisible to the ghostly cellars, running my hands over wool, silk, spices, oyster shells. I felt dried hops running through my fingers, and marbling of books on my fingers, my fingertips. I heard cries, accents from all over England and Northern Europe, men and women from Lancashire, Holland, Germany, Yorkshire, chickens, horses, iron, the chains of scales working, sex, riot, and desire. The greatest medieval fair in Europe, Elizabeth said quietly, now you can smell it. Can you see it? Cambridge is just a palimpsest. All of this is. Just one century laid upon another, laid upon another. Nothing is ever quite lost, while there are a few old buildings standing the sentinel. Time bleeds here, seeps, perhaps more than anywhere else in the city. You'll see. Now you have to see the chapel. We walked back over onto the busy Newmarket Road up the brow of the hill, where the leper chapel stood facing the road in a miniature valley of its own. In Newton's time, it was used for storage of the semi-dairy Elizabeth began, pulling a wrought iron key from her coat pocket and slipping it into the hole in the door. Just think, it's been here for nearly a thousand years before the city was anything more than a village or a castle and a fort. In the 17th century, Samuel Pepys would have stood in it, and John Bunyan, he used to average fairs for money for his lines of fair scene and progress, which of course baffled the stone for the time of his novel. Now I was late for Elizabeth's funeral, walking towards the leper chapel, lost somewhere in Stourbridge Fair with the ghost of a dead woman and a whole host of imagined smells I didn't know what to do with, and Pepys and Bunyan and Thackeray. Your fault, I'm late, as if I said aloud, stepping to one side to let a woman pass who was pushing a child in a buggy and talking on a mobile phone at the same time. We were both talking to the air, to ghosts. Time had begun to bleed in the way that it did around Elizabeth. Yes, I had turned my back on Cambridge and you, Cameron Brown, for five years, but the 
delays the city drive from being always the same. A physical oppression, a sense of moldy suffocation and bad air. Low gray skies on most days suddenly transform to arcs of blue that make your heart ache. Cambridge made me think of Madame Bovary trying to draw breath in the prim protocols of suburbia and yearning for she knew not what, angry for she knew not what. And yes, like Emma, your eyes were never quite the same each time I saw you, black in shadow, brown in daylight, and close up like the stem cell slices you photographed. They had all the richness and variety of hue of medieval stained glass.
it was, it was terrible what was going on there. The government's friends who were growing opium in India, you know, wanted to sell it in China, and uh, the emperor banned it. And they were just on there. What about arms sales now? It's still going it's on. It's still going on. Yeah. I have a, a, a slightly kind of romanticised idea I think, of what a novel can do as a form uh, in relation to your really interesting question, um, which is that, you know, not always, but at its best, it can be fully dialogic and, and, and engage readers in, the, in questions about how this is made and what stories you tell about the past and why you tell them and what alternative stories are. So that instead of offering as a history book might do something that is polished and sealed and absolutely um, un, uh, undialogic, uh, we can give something, make something, okay, controlled by us, definitely, you know, prejudiced through our own, written through our own temperaments and our own interests, but nonetheless reminding readers at best that history is something that is made in dialogue, it isn't, it isn't a given. Goes on to be negotiated. Uh, yeah. Romantic, perhaps. I'm going to hold it. Yeah. All right, yes. so I'd like just to, uh, to say that in my country, Brazil, we had a military dictatorship from 1964 to 1985. And the, uh, we came out of the military dictatorship by talking a lot, not by fighting. And that included an, a general amnesty. Both sides, the leftists fighting against the military, nobody would be prosecuted. And right now, there is this uh, commission of truth set up by the current administration in order to gather as much documents as they can, as they can from those days. But the military say, you know, we don't have documents anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, it's really interesting, you know. Part of your job relies on uh, other people's job, yeah. namely yeah. the historians. But of course, you go to archives, you search for uh, first-hand, first-hand records and documents and stuff. Then I think, what about the internet as a search tool? It's making your life easier or not, or it will make it easier someday. Of course, going somewhere is not like clicking. But, you know, more and more records would be available online. Yeah, records and Google books, books mm -hmm. that you would only have access to if you had access to a copyright library. Uh, even for me, as a tool, one of the weirdest things that I'm using at the moment is uh, uh, Google Earth. Uh, you know, I've been rolling. You know, I can do street view and I can walk up and down contemporary streets. But um, Google is also giving us a historical street view. Doesn't go very far, it makes sense, but there are photographs. You know, you can walk a street in London and then you can click on a photograph which will show you that same street 50 years ago or 100 years ago. So, in other yeah, words, the competition, it's limited, will, yeah, uh, the competition will be tougher. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it, is a, it is a wonderful resource, the internet. I think uh, um, there's almost it's probably, it's probably one of the reasons the books have gotten longer as well. I mean, I think Google Pro, as they call it. It's just because the information is available, you can enter. So these books have really gone very long. Maybe they'll be a backlash to that. I think you take 
one more question. I'm sorry, I will take you back. Um, I'm just fascinated by this story around pain in the context of pain. And also, what struck me about your reading was the physicality of the senses. And if there isn't a way in which going back and writing um, from a historical kind of perspective, you live with greater been listening to a podcast from the Norwich Showcase. More readings from the Showcase can be found on both the British Council and Writers' Centre Norwich websites. Mm-hmm.